0: Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Welcome to The Rest is History. Now, this is another chance to hear an episode that we recorded back in June 2021, about England's relationship over the years with Ukraine. Well, I say England, but England and Wales, actually. So the context was during the European Championships football tournament last summer. We recorded an episode exploring England's relationship with each of their opponents going all the way through to the final. So that's why we keep in this episode bringing it back to football. But we are re-uploading the episode now in late February 2022 in the context of what looks like an impending Russian invasion of Ukraine. We've also done episodes about the early history of Ukraine and the whole sweep of Ukrainian history. Enjoy the show.
1: The, the reason that we're back here with, with a special is um, that England are meeting Ukraine in Rome. And so yes. we, we, we did an episode on Anglo-German
0: relations, which obviously there's quite a lot to talk about. Anglo-Ukrainian relations, a bit more of a challenge, isn't it? There's more than you'd think. I mean, Ukraine is... Let's start off by saying Ukraine is an unbelievably interesting country. I mean, uh, Kievan Rus, as it began, and part of the... Very dramatic. attack by the Mongols. So it's got Viking stuff, which I'm sure we're going to come back to, sort of Viking involvement. Then it's totally destroyed, isn't it, by the Mongols. becomes part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which I always think we should do a podcast about, because it's just such a strange state. Um, carved up between the Austrian and Russian empires. I mean, there's so much to talk about with Ukraine. Actually, I mean, Look admittedly, this. we haven't quite got mentioned the English elements, but we'll come to that. Okay. Well, I've, I'm going to say something provocative, which is that if Ukraine beat England, football yeah. will be going home. A, a, a ludicrous view, and I'd like to hear you justify it. Okay. I will do that. So the word football, compound yeah. word,
1: foot. And ball, thanks for that. <laughs> what are what are the origins of these words? What's what's the, the etymological ancestry? Well, in, in, English is an Indo-European language, and where is the homeland of the Indo-Europeans? Is it the steppes of Ukraine? It is. yeah, southern Russia and the steppes of Ukraine. So above uh, the Caspian and the Black Sea. I mean, that's the almost overwhelming consensus. That right. It, it's it, you know, obviously there are people who think maybe. The that's- Indo-Europeans came from Anatolia or from Atlantis or India or but but generally that's the consensus opinion. So that means that um that basically so the word foot, but yeah. the, the the original, the the kind of you know, we we don't know what the Proto-Indo-European word was, but linguists have kind of basically worked out that it was something along the lines of pods or ped. So you get you get you know that that you get that in Latin, in Greek, yes. in yeah. Sanskrit, you get PA in French. Um, and the Germanic strand, the P turned to an F, but the best one is ball, and (laughs) it was – in Old English, it was bial. Yeah. In Proto-Germanic, apparently, it was baluz, and in Proto-Indo-European, it was bial, which apparently meant (laughs) – Say that again. Say that last
0: one again. (laughs) (laughs) Bial.
1: That's how they spoke on the steps right? 4,000 BC.
0: Okay. Um, And that meant blow, inflate, swell. So it's a kind of, you know, like a a blown up ball. Okay. But Tom, this is a claim you could make about almost anything, right? I mean, you could claim dishwashers for Ukrainian because the word for dish comes from the Indo-European or something. If I was
1: doing a a podcast about anglo Ukrainian attitudes, dishwashers. That's exactly the <laughs> argument I would make. Right. But since since this is um, prompted by a football match, I'm focusing on football. So, okay, football so, will be going home. Yeah. Well, the word. I, 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 I mean, I, not the not the practice. The word. Yes, the
0: word. I agree. It's a bit of a stretch. But I thought you'd be more impressed by that than. you No, think I am be. impressed. I, I mean, I tell you who would have been impressed by that. The late J. R. R. Tolkien. He was a great yes, man. For the, yeah, of for yes, the roots of he loved, words, yeah. he would have loved that. So you've you've ticked that box. If he's listening, which he isn't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well if he, he were listening, dead. he'd really enjoy it. Anyway, glassy podcast. Um here. do you have I believe I I'm confident you have something more substantive to offer about surely there must have been Anglo Saxons were
1: involved in the Ukraine. Almost certainly, yes, there were. So so we talked about um the Viking origins of Kiev. Yeah. Um and the Rus, which mean rowers, were basically Swedes who came down the great rivers. Um, Vladimir is, the Great. Yes. Uh, and they established um, Kiev as a kind of um, stronghold controlling the trade routes. Um, and it became a kind of a, a, a piratical empire. Yeah. Um, and Vladimir of Kiev converts to Christianity, the, the, the Christianity that you get in Constantinople, because he, he didn't want to become Muslim because he couldn't drink. He <laughs> thought that the cathedrals of the the Latin Christians were not as impressive
0: as Hagia Sophia. And don't, so he, they, don't they go down and they see the Hagia Sophia and they're absolutely astounded? Yeah, they in, say, their paradise they say, you know, I had not thought that anything
1: so beautiful could be seen. He he thinks it's a vision of heaven, and so that persuades him to sign up to the Byzantine form of Christianity. And so the the um, the Kievan Rus are absorbed into the world of Byzantium, uh, and they have a slightly kind of ambivalent status because the Vikings are, are perpetually coming down and attacking Constantinople, but as they get converted to Christianity. Um, so they become kind of allies of 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 the byzantine empires emperors, and um they start to recruit uh, Vikings as personal guards for the emperor uh, on yeah. the assumption that they are kind of neutral that they can be relied upon um then this is the famous Varangian guard after ten sixty six large numbers of um, displaced anglo saxon aristocrats, nobility seem to have migrated to Constantinople. And to have joined the Varangian Guard, and there are various reports, various um, kind of sagas, so on, saying that they arrive when um, Constantinople is under siege, uh, presumably by the by the um, by the Turks. Um, they play a, a, a heroic role in this, and as a reward, the emperor says, "You know, what what can we give you?" And some of yeah. them say, "We would like to form a new England," and. There's a wonderful paper by the historian Caitlin Green who who writes fabulous stuff about all kinds of intriguing early medieval, you know, Byzantine coins that pop up in Japan and so on. And she's written this fantastic piece about saying was there truth to this? Did um did the Byzantine emperor grant a New England to yeah. the Anglo-Saxon Varangians? And she argues that it was it was um granted to them on Crimea. Okay. And she said, you know, there are, there are various kind of um, chronicles, sagas throughout the Middle Ages that make reference to this. Um, in the Edward saga, which is 14th century Icelandic saga, but drawing on apparently on 12th century material to the towns that were in the land and to those which they built, they gave the names of the towns in England. They called them both London and York and by the names of other great towns in England. So there was a and New York in Crimea. There was a New York and New England in Crimea, apparently, uh, and as evidence for this, Caitlin um, cites various Italian charts from the 14th, 15th, 16th centuries, which mention a Londina, which is presumably yeah. London, yeah, and a place called Sosaco, which is Saxon, so Saxon town, nice. Which you know, so the evidence there is That's amazing. You know, it's it's tantalising, yeah, but I think certainly strong enough for a
0: podcast on. Anglo-Ukrainian. Well, if Vladimir Vladimir Putin is listening to this, he will be raging. I mean, he will have cancelled his subscription because he would say Ukraine and Crimea are not the same. If Ukrainian listeners are listening, they will be writing. Well, they will be ordering your books in triumph and saying. But but we're looking at this from the
1: medieval perspective, Dominic. And Vladimir is baptized. Vladimir, the 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 first um, Ukrainian to be
0: Christian, is baptized in Crimea. Right, I did not know. That's yes. interesting. So, well,
1: that's that's so why Crimea that's... is
0: part of the Ukrainian world then, ab- without any question. Yes. Yeah, absolutely.
1: But that's also why it's so significant for Vladimir Putin and Russia is that it's seen as the birthplace of of um, Russian Christianity as well. Right. So, so when when the Russians um, annexed Crimea, there were kinds of extraordinary photos of priests with their long beards. Casting holy water onto jets and (laughs) blessing the um, the Russian forces as they were moving into annexed Crimea. So it's it Crimea is a kind of holy place.
0: It's it's kind of it's the Canterbury, yeah, or a bit like Kosovo for the Serbs. So it's this sort of you know this sort of place that's become slightly detached from the you know it's not part of the the main sort of territory. But Kosovo is a battle, right? I mean, it's it's yeah, Kosovo is a battle. It has a sacred it has a sacred significance. But I think
1: I think for um, for both Ukrainians, U- Ukrainians and Russians, the the fact that it's baptismal, that it's yeah. it's the the wellspring of the Christianity of both the Ukrainians and the Russians, gives it. I mean, gives it a peculiar resonance because it it gives it. You know, it's like Canterbury or Rome or, or even yeah. Jerusalem. It has that kind of holiness to it. That okay, um, that's all. And good. so, and so when when um, uh, Potemkin captures Crimea. For Catherine the Great
0: from the Turks from the Ottomans from the Turks. isn't
1: it yeah he he says to her you know we have we have captured the, the birthplace of russian christianity and this is what joins us to constantinople and he 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 name references pompey the great he name references alexander he says this joins us to the the classical traditions and the christian traditions of our you know our our, our russia russia as the third rome
0: um so it's sacred you know it has this kind of holiness both to the Ukrainians and to the Russians. But of course to, to most um English speaking or certainly most British listeners Crimea has a significance um the Crimean War. It's what yes. every I mean people don't really think about the Crimean War now but there was a time when the Crimean War loomed so large thanks to Tennyson and his poem the, the charge of the light brigade the valley of death and all that sort of stuff. Um the first modern war some people might say the Crimean war do you think?
1: Yeah, so the Crimean War is um, fought by a, a Turkish Anglo French alliance. Such a strange war. Y- yes, against the Russians. Um, and it's kind of centered around Sevastopol, isn't it? Yeah, it's 1853
0: to 1856. Um, um, the, the, the sort of the trigger for the war is who administers the holy places in Ottoman occupied Israel and Palestine. So that's yes, another yes, example yes. of how this stuff really matters. Yeah, I mean absolutely. Who owns the holy places? Yes, it's also about French and Russian sort of national virility. They both, you know, the Russians are expanding, the Ottoman Empire is 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 sort of breaking up, the French want to and the British want to preserve the Ottoman Empire. They want to stop the Russians getting the straits, the the sort of Constantinople and the gateway to the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. Um and this sort of blows up into this incredibly vicious war, but also the first, uh, war with railways, with telegraphs, with photography, with Florence Nightingale. War correspondence, isn't it? The Times sends a correspondent,
1: and it's the first yes. one where you get reports from the front. Um, and it's the, it's the first kind of major European war that Britain's fought, and indeed the French, since um, the Napoleonic Wars. And there are various kind of generals out there, who British generals who keep getting
0: muddled up. And yeah, they're, they're, keep, it's let's attack complete, the French it's a rather shambles. than the Russians. It's a bit of a shambles, isn't it, the Crimean War? So most famously, and actually we've talked about we talked about him a few times, so it seems mad not to mention Flashman. The great Crimean War book, I think, is Flashman at the Charge, in which Flashman is in the, the yes. thick of all the action. So, And all these characters, Lord Cardigan and all these people who absolutely despise Flashman are charging towards Russian guns and being massacred and so on. So that, so, so from the footballing point of view... There
1: are two key engagements, two key approaches to attacking your enemy that the Crimean War exemplifies. So you have the Charge of the Light Brigade, which is full on, you know, let's open with Grealish, attack. That's Kevin Keegan's England, second 2000. Um, Which goes disastrously wrong. Yeah. And then you've got the thin red line. Uh, and Scottish listeners, I hope will forgive me the thin red line is actually it's it's a Scottish regiment it's the Sutherland Highlanders um but from the point of view of this podcast, let's say british English whatever um and that's where um a Russian cavalry force is approaching. They are kind of stranded. It's Colin Campbell who commands them, lines them up not in four because they don't have enough to do that. That's the standard approach he he lines them up in so they're kind of they're too deep, and this is the thin red line. Positive yeah. phrase. Yeah. So that implies defense, holding out. So um, I guess Gareth Southgate is a, a kind of thin red line man.
0: He is. He's rather a, yeah, than yes, a, he is. there are
1: my gu- there are your guns, my lord. Attack. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let's, so, so, let's
0: the, so the charge of the light brigade. Yeah, just talk us through that because oh. it's such a great story. Um, so the charge of the light brigade is an utter shambles now. I haven't come prepared for this, Tom. So I'm just trying to remember it. Uh, the Russians' guns are at the top of a valley, aren't they? At the um, bottom of the valley, I think. At the bottom of the valley. Well, at one end of the valley, anyway. Yeah, yeah. They're at some end of the valley. So this is a balaclava. Um, hence, you know, the uh, the nice the swollen many, yeah. mask. Um, and uh, now, as so I remember, the Russians are withdrawing. And the, the commander says you know, go and basically get the guns before they withdraw. But he, somehow in the course of this being relayed to the Light Brigade, they end up pointing at the wrong guns. That's right, isn't it? The, he says it, they're real guns. <laughs> so <laughs> the chain of command, there are three lords, all of he's, whom are useless. Yeah. So there's Lord Raglan. That's right. Who yeah. fought in the
1: Napoleonic Wars. And he's yeah. the one who keeps saying, go and attack the French. <laughs> <despite> <laughs> the fact that the <laughs> French are his allies. Yeah. And he's about kind of 90 incredibly doddery. Yeah. Then there's Lord Lucan. Ancestor yes. of the Lord Lucan, who will in he, due doesn't, course, he doesn't he doesn't disappear. He doesn't yeah. he doesn't disappear, and he I think is the brother-in-law of Lord Cardigan. Now Lord Cardigan commands, is ashamed, is a ridiculous who command, man who commands <laughs> the Light Brigade, uh, but yeah. they detest each other. Yes, and then there's a guy called Nolan.
0: He's the intermediary, isn't he? Intermediary. He carries the message.
1: Yeah, and because none of them are speaking to each other, <laughs> it, it 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 doesn't. It doesn't provide for great communication, and so basically, there's there's a kind of there's a, a snarl up. Uh, Cardigan says, "Which guns do you mean?" Nolan gestures, and then I think gets
0: shot, <laughs> gets killed. Kind of, he speaks first, doesn't he? Doesn't he say, "There are your guns, my lord," or something? Yes. Go and yes. get them, or whatever.
1: <laughs> Pointing got,
0: vaguely into the
1: distance. And the the one rule of 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 war is that if you have. Cavalry, and particularly light cavalry, you don't use it to charge artillery no, head madness. on. Yeah. So Cardigan thinks this is mad, but because he's been given the order, and because he is, um he's just insanely arrogant and
0: yeah. stiff-necked. He's just a ragged. Victorian British general, right? He, so just, he just does goes. what he
1: does. <laughs> yeah. Inventor of the cardigan, of course.
0: Is he the inventor of the cardigan? I think so.
1: I think that's why you know he wears it over his shoulder, doesn't he? Like the kind of jacket. I
0: didn't know that. I think so. I, I think that's so. A great fact.
1: Um, and so they they charge down, they get ex- absolutely devastated,
0: and then the survivors kind of trot back. But you know what? There's now a revisionist history of this, as with all disastrous British battles, but like you know the Somme or Passchendaele or whatever. There are military historians now who actually who say, well, I actually, you know, it was the, quite good was it? Yeah, we got the results we wanted or whatever. I mean, I don't. Believe yeah, that that's campaign. very football manager. Yeah, guess, no. <laughs> yeah, all right, we lost seven 0 but <laughs> but you know. <laughs> We've learned we, lessons. We go again on Tuesday. Provides um, a platform. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's lots to build on. The last but of course, game, but, but I mean, 100%. it's
1: also very. Um, I mean, I guess this is this is something that uh, football sport perhaps has inherited. We love a, a kind of a bloody disaster.
0: Of course, we do. Yeah, and then there's a book, uh, isn't there?
1: Heroic failure in the British. Um, yeah, so get the Gaza bursting into tears. Exactly. As we it's, get knocked out. Yeah, I mean, people. I mean, it lives
0: on in the. That's English why it folklore. feels slightly unEnglish to be making sort of unruffled progress through a tournament as we have been doing for the last few games.
1: And so, in a sense, Tennyson's poem on the Charge of the Light Brigade kind of absolutely establishes the template for that. I yeah. mean, there's, there is a, a kind of football chant quality to it.
0: Well, I think post-colonial historians are sort of not people I normally quote um, with enormous, overwhelming admiration, but they would say. Um, A lot of this stuff is motivated by guilt, they think, or sort of bad conscience. That The sort of British create this cult of martyrdom, you know, and, oh, we're so outnumbered. We're the underdogs and we performed heroically and were beaten to sort of, you know, to to sort of cope with the fact that um, actually they're just mowing people down with Gatling guns. Except on on this occasion, it's because we're grotesquely incompetent. Yeah. And I think actually this is the other thing. So there's a lot of fan misbehaviour. There's a lot of discontent with the management, which is very football, and there's fan misbehavior. So in England, the war is quite unpopular with, um, I think, particularly with the Tories and with Tory voters. And there's all these scenes where people are pelting. Um, they had, there are snowball riots where the, where the fans, as it were, are pelting. I, don't, I think they were pelting like recruiting officers or something with snowballs. Um, and the government fought. Well, the Earl of Aberdeen, who was the Prime Minister, falls, and then Palmerston takes over. Of course, Palmerston is a great man for. Attacking foreigners, yeah, sending yeah. gunboats. There are there there are legacies of the Crimean War in lots of towns still, and um, these these when we finally at the end of the war we captured Sebastopol. Um, there's loads of old Russian guns, cannons, and they're all brought home and they were sent all around the country. I mean, there are some in, you know, there were sense like Hartlepool. Every town wanted one, particularly towns that had support strongly supported the war. So there's one in Abingdon, and there's there's loads in Canada actually. There's about 20 still in Canada of these Sebastopol guns. Um, which was sort of, you know, hurrah, hurrah, we've captured these old Russian cannons. And then some of them were melted down in the Second World War um, to, you know, build Spitfires or something. So there were sort of weird, you know, relics of um, the Crimean War in sort of market towns all over England. Oh, we're just getting a message from our producer.
1: Victoria Cross medals are still made out of melted down Sebastopol guns.
0: That is controversial. I believe I, I think so, that people have analyzed Victoria Cross medals and said are they Honestly, really Honestly Dominic to- just stop ruining what? <laughs> stop
1: ruining our facts.
0: Yeah, stop 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 it with your with your with your historical truths. Well, um, I mean
1: and also of course um, the other legacy is uh, nursing. Florence so
0: Nightingale, Florence Nightingale yeah. and Mary Seacole. Yeah. Yes,
1: who in a way has become a kind of icon to the extent that she's replaced Florence Nightingale. Even though she wasn't a nurse, I think
0: she. I think she basically just ran a hotel. With, Every schoolchild in Britain now learns about Mary Seacole, don't they? I mean, there's the sort of and, but usually this is prefaced with the words, "She's written out of history, and nobody reads <laughs> about her now." Well, I, th- <laughs> I think it's kind of it's it's an interesting example of the way in which
1: um, we continue to mythologise people. Yeah. From British imperial history, even in the even in the twenty first century, um, yes. Mary Mary Seacole is an entirely mythologised person in exactly the way that um, I guess. The Earl of Cardingdon was?
0: Um, Cardingdon? Yeah, Cardigan. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Tom, you know, I thought this podcast would take about 10 minutes uh, on Anglo-Ukrainian relations, and partly because we haven't really talked massively about Anglo-Ukrainian relations. We've, we've now got to the end of the first half. Well, there are going to be... It is going to be a game of two halves. Um, um, shall I end it by reading a chunk of Tennyson? I think that would be absolutely brilliant. So we'll go out on Tennyson, and you
1: can yeah. imagine... A, Let's hope that this doesn't (laughs) prefigure what happens in Rome. Forward the light brigade, was there a man dismayed? Not though the soldier knew someone had blundered. There's not to make reply, there's not to reason why, there's but to do and die. Into the valley of death rode the 600. Hello, welcome back to uh, a Rest is History special on Anglo-Ukrainian relations. Um, as Dominic said before the break, I, I thought we might struggle to fill out 20 minutes on this. Um, but we've, I've, I basically, I've said everything that I know. I now have nothing more to add. And Dominic is very, Dominic (laughs) is very
0: confidently saying he's got stuff for another 20 minutes worth. So give it. I never, ever thought I would hear you say those words, Tom. Are you all right? You've said everything you know. I don't believe that true. I don't know, I can don't know anything true. else about Anglo-Ukrainian relations. You don't know about Huzovka? No. Huzovka is such a great story. Okay, so... Does he have anything to do with the Donbass? Um, yes, and he's also okay. not a person. He's a place. Okay, well, that shows how much <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so the Donbass, I did a, a school geography project on it. Wow. On Donetsk and the sort of coal yeah. and iron... They're one of the most industrial areas yeah. of Europe. And now, of course, at the centre of this... UK- so that was in this, the 70s. This war, the Russian-Ukrainian yeah. kind of undeclared war that's going on in Donetsk and Luhansk. Um, so I, I did geography projects
1: on Chicago
0: and yeah. on the Donbass. I've never been to either, but I, I feel I know them. Do you know what I did? as was my geography project. I did one on open-cast mining. <laughs> well, of course you did. So depressing. I mean, I should have done... uh why didn't I get to do Chicago? It's so unjust. I can still draw the the map of the airport Any, going out into the lake. Anyway, sorry. we're we're So I keep waiting for the podcast on open-cast mining, but I don't think it's going to happen. It will <laughs> it's come. happen. All right, so mining brings us to the Donbass. So people remember they had um, the Euro Maidan revolution in um, Ukraine at the beginning of the 2010s and uh, the Russians annexed Crimea, and then there was this fighting in the east. And during all this fighting... Uh, A thing went up on the internet, and it said it's time for Donetsk, the city at the centre of this, to be re. You know, the solution is for it to be reunited with the United Kingdom. You know, it should be neither Russian nor Ukrainian, but British. And you might think that's ridiculous, but Donetsk did begin as a British foundation. So, eighteen, late eighteen sixties, the Russian Empire is very rapidly developing, and um, they they need to bring in talent to basically industrialise it. And they they do a deal with a company called the Millwall Ironworks and Shipbuilding Company. So you could hardly find a more English company. And the Millwall Ironworks send over a man called John Hughes who unfortunately for this podcast is Welsh. Um, so, yeah, but he's come from, it's come from Millwall, Tom. He's come from a Millwall company. So I I'm think sure, I'm sure our Welsh listeners they will, will They us bundling
1: this. Wales into
0: England. I'm not bundling Wales into England. <laughs> England. I'm, I'm elevating Wales above England. I think that's what I'm doing. Okay. Um, so John Hughes goes over. He's from Merthyr Tidville. He goes down to um, what's now Ukraine, and he picks his spot. And he says, this is the place, iron and and coal and stuff. And he starts bringing over. The Russians don't have the skilled engineers and stuff. So he brings over hundreds of largely Welsh, skilled um, laborers and engineers and miners and so on to set up his factories. And they do. And by the end of the century, there's about 30,000 people living there. A lot of them Welsh or English. There's an Anglican church. There are... Um, and as an English-speaking school, so and this is what's going to become Donetsk, and at the time it's called Hughesovka, so it's named after John Hughes, and it's basically a sort of British and mixed British Ukrainian and Russian community in Ukraine, and it's one of the sort of big industrial, becoming one of the already one of the big industrial powerhouses of Central and Eastern Europe, and basically it continues as that until the Russian Revolution. When all the Brits are kicked out, so and and it's extraordinary that some of them have gone from rags to riches to rags again. So They've come from you know nothing in South Wales, they've worked their way up, they go to um, they've gone out to the Russian Empire and they've made a lot of money and they live in you know with servants and things, and then the Russians kick them out and they come back to Wales with nothing. So that's an extraordinary story. And of course the, it, it doesn't stay as Huzovka; it is renamed Starlino. Uh, and then ends up, and then, then ends up becoming donetsk is there so,
1: any move to rename it give it back its original name
0: i don't think so i think basically the russian constantinople the russian yeah the russians and the ukrainians are fighting very sort of fiercely over it so so making it british again i mean making it british again would be a kind of answer wouldn't it would you could give it an mp could be a county i suppose be great wouldn't it yeah yeah the donbass and they probably got some know? great
1: footballers and then they could play for england
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, Shakhtar Donetsk uh, was often in the Champions League. Um, They imported a lot of Brazilian players. I don't think they relied on local talent, um, particularly. They're a very fetching kind of orangey strip. Um, I think they do very well in the Premier League. I'd like to see them in the Premier League. But there's also another sort of quite weird Welsh connection. So Ukraine has this absolutely ghastly um, 20th century history. I mean, I read something the other day when I was thinking about this that – some American scholar who's basically said there is no example anywhere in the world of a country that has sort of suffered more chaotic and miserable time than Ukraine after the First World War. So after the First World War, I think there was, at one point there were seven different armies fighting for control of Ukraine. So there's white Russians, there's the Bolsheviks, there's some anarchists, there's the Poles, there's, I think, two different groups of Ukrainian nationalists. So it's just an mm. absolute nightmare, and that can continues um, because Ukraine has the famine in the early 1930s, and then obviously so it's under Stalin. Under Stalin, then the Nazis attack. Some of them help the Nazis. Some of them fight against the Nazis. The Red Army counterattacks. It's just, then there's a kind yeah. of more stuff with the Poles going on. It's just an utter, utter, utter nightmare. And t- the historian Timothy Snyder has this book, Bloodlands. And Ukraine is absolutely the centre of this. This sort of blood, literally, literally blood-soaked territory, um, where people are being thrown into Shot mass graves and, and all this yeah. stuff. But amid all this, um, one of the massive events in Ukrainian identity is the Holodomor, the famine of the early 1930s. And it's another. It's a British journalist who exposes this. A man called Gareth Jones, another Welshman. Uh, There's a very, film about
1: him, wasn't there? Just
0: yeah, I, I think by common consent, of quite a poor film actually. Um, mm. James Norton played him. He's, uh, you know, he's from Barry in in South Wales. He works for the Times. He goes to Russia and to Ukraine. Um, now the, here's an amazing um, connection: his mother had worked in Huzovka as the tutor of John Hughes's son. Only connect. Yeah. Isn't that bizarre? what that a, bizarre. And by, and then he doesn't have a massive interest in Russia. He studies French, uh, Gareth Jones, I think at Cambridge, and then goes to work for the Times and ends up being sent back to this place where his mother had worked as a tutor. But purely coincidentally. Purely coincidentally. And he discovers that um, the famine is happening, and he writes reports about it in the Times. And then probably the most, one of the most famous journalistic scandals of the 20th century... Um, a man called Walter Duranty, who worked for the New York Times, who was also British-born, um, but had become American. Durante is kind of in with Stalin. He writes these appalling, appalling stories in the New York Times saying that Gareth Jones is lying and that there is no famine. And actually, Durante knew that Jones was telling the truth. But f- through journalistic competition <laughs> and through wanting to keep in with Stalin, um, he, he just um, lied about it. The New York and- Times, eh? well new york times, you know my opinion of the new york times tom is i mean there are very few newspapers i hold in lower regard than the new york times so i've I, part of me that is very satisfied by telling this story um right. but uh, poor old jones comes to a very sticky end he goes off to mongolia after being in ukraine he's banned from russia from from the soviet union he goes I'm not off. surprised to, he goes off to mongolia and the he's murdered i think probably by the nkvd by stalin's um mm-hmm. secret police So it's a very unfortunate ending. But, you know, if things get a bit testy on the pitch on Saturday night, the England players should remind the Ukrainians that Britain has a history of looking out for Ukraine and sticking up for it when others were lying. And the Crimea. The Crimea is New England. Yeah. I mean, that would go down very badly because the Crimea will be a sore spot um, for the Ukrainian players, I imagine. So um, I, d- yes. I don't think I don't so, think, I think uh, ge-
1: just generally, I think just keep off the topic of history.
0: <laughs> Safest. Do you think actually as a rule of thumb? Yeah. Harry, <laughs> you know, Harry Maguire is meant to be a great um history buff because so, when he was arrested. So Harry Maguire, for those people who don't know, is the sort of enormous. Huge headed. Huge headed. <laughs> England centre back. Very good. Very underrated player, in my view. Anyway, Harry Maguire was arrested in Greece
1: was, Greece, of course, yes. Greece, of
0: course, has its own connections with Ukraine because there were Greek settlements, weren't there? Um, yeah. In, in Crimea and so on. So Harry Maguire was arrested in Greece and apparently the Greek police claimed he'd been misbehaving or he'd been involved. Well, that's I, I'm probably introducing him there. I don't think he had been misbehaving. I think he would have been some fracas in a nightclub or similar um, or and there'd then been a fracas with the police. And. Um, the police claimed that Harry Maguire had shouted, "I won't say exactly. He shouted, F the f f the Greek police, f Greek civilization.'" <laughs> Which, and he, when I heard that, I thought, "I don't genuinely believe that the captain of Manchester United." <laughs> shouted about Greek <laughs> civilization at three o'clock in the morning as he was being bundled into a, into the back of a police van. You know, does Harry Maguire have strong views about <laughs> <Yes>. Aristotle? <laughs> Athenian imperialism. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, yes. exactly. I've always been a Persian man. <laughs> so, Circumstance was framed. Damn you for invading Sicily. <laughs> um, yeah.
1: Never forget. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, well... So, I mean, <laughs> I, I think it's unlikely that he will... Did you see co- this huge skull that got discovered? Of Harry Maguire world? or of some other person? Uh, Adam Rutherford wickedly said that Harry Maguire looked like this, this yeah.
1: incredible skull that was found in China.
0: There's something that always I find very satisfying about watching English sporting teams is when they look like people from the First World War mm-hmm. and Harry, or, or Second World War from newsreels and stuff. And Harry Maguire absolutely he has that sl- slightly... Frowning, slightly mm-hmm. pained, anxious expression. Yeah, about English- somebody about to go over the top, uh, or somebody going abroad. <laughs> I was thinking like yes. English people when they were filmed going abroad. Sort of people like the miners from Derbyshire in the nineteen fifties who famously went on a look to Italy on a coach tour. With um, they packed the, the inside of the coach with tins of baked beans because they were suspicious of the Italian food. I think Harry Maguire is absolutely a man of that ilk. Whereas um, Jack Grealish, I think, looks like someone out of Dickens. Do you? I think I can definitely see Jack Grealish in the First World War. He the does, kind of, but I think... But I The can, Joker I can of the him. Trench, all that sort of... He's the artful dodger. You know, you know, doing his hair, brill-creamed hair in the trench, going off to the... Cheery... Yeah. Cheery, I, I, sha- yeah. I, I, very popular with the local girls the, yeah. in the, the bombed-out French town that they've, they they pass through. And um, Harry Kane looks like a Habsburg prince. Yes, he does. He's got the. Yes, he absolutely does. That's a very good call. So he could have. So I'd ruled- say Harry
1: Maguire. Harry Harry Maguire is First
0: World War. Yeah. That Grealish is Victorian. Harry Kane is sixteenth century. Well, I see. Harry Kane is the kind of man who could have ruled Western Ukraine, Galicia. He could have visited Lviv on um, sort of imperial archducal visits, or don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we're spiralling off here. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think I think we'll be losing
1: our listeners. So, um, Dominic, if um suppose england win yes uh, let and i think i think we should say uh we we think they're going to lose because it worked last time didn't Yeah, it yeah it did work. So think we think we'll they're going to lose, gonna lose i think it'll lose.
0: be very frustrating and we'll lose one now very disappointing but, but
1: um if we if we win then there'd be opportunities for a further one particularly if it's denmark england anglo
0: danish relations or oh, anglo-, 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 anglo rich yeah that's a that's a that's a great Riches. team I mean, that's basically a podcast series um, rather than a podcast, Anglo uh, Czech relations. I well, there's will one be, obvious. Will be, another, will be another another stretch, yes. I think.
1: Um, no, no, no. We've got, well, I mean, apart from um, uh, Chamberlain, there's John yeah. D. going to Prague.
0: Okay. So, there's great stuff. Yeah. Great scenes. We just need to see what would be a problem for us is, I think, a Czech Ukrainian semi final, <laughs> <laughs> because I think Czech Ukrainian relations would be beyond even your mighty talents, oh. Tom well
1: we'll see <laughs> we'll see let's let's hope England win but as I say we think they're going to lose
0: well the best well good luck to the ukrainians I hope they play well um i hope they i do,
1: you know they, to to be honest I think the ukrainian it would victory would bring ukrainians greater joy than us and they would think that they need it more they've had a dreadful they've had, they've a, had dreadful, a bad ten year. years they've, they've, they've had, had a, a bad yeah. century uh, so yeah. um so if England lose i will I will bear that in mind
0: yeah that's and a very nice note. That thought on trend
1: Okay, thanks very much for listening. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.